let's go on the way with the introduction to guidance and uh, each of those headings will come up with subpoints as we work our way through and uh, this will check whether our PowerPoint people are paying attention. They nod off, you'll just see one heading standing there for a long, long time and your notes will get smaller and smaller as you squeeze more and more irrelevancies under the heading. But we'll check them out, won't we? Firstly, just as an introduction to guidance, let me give you some basic principles that I'm operating on because I'm not going to talk of the principles to, in these evening talks, I'm going to illustrate the principles as they apply to certain situations. But the basic principles run somewhere like this. It is the principle of the sufficiency of Scripture. God has spoken. Come with me to Hebrews chapter 1. I'm going to do a lot of Bible flipping as we go through tonight's talk and each of the talks. And so uh, get your telephones ready or whatever it is you do now. Um, I, I have paper up here and it's printed. Hebrews 1. Long ago, and I'm using the uh, ESV uh, through the talks, long ago and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. God has spoken. He's revealed himself. And in speaking and revealing himself, he did it piecemeal over a long period of time through, through the prophets. In all kinds of different ways did the prophets speak. And bit by bit, piece by piece, the information was given by God. Little, little bits, little bits were just given by God. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And the son in whom he has spoken and through whom and by whom he has spoken to us, the son is God himself. The son is well, you see him described there in a whole series of incredible statements about him. He is the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God. You know how light gives a light? I point to that light and I say, you see that light and you can see that light because that light is shining in my eyes. If that light wasn't on, I couldn't see the light that... He is the light of the light. He's the glory of the glory. He's the, the radiance of the radiator. He's the... If you see him, you see God. That is who you see because that's who this one is. He, is the, he has the exact imprint of the very nature of God. Now, after you've, after you've seen Jesus, after you've had Jesus speak to you, what more do you need to know? What more is there to know? What more can some later prophet come along and say, oh, by the way, Jesus left this bit out. You know, you didn't know this about God. You have seen God. There is nothing more to be said. And so with the revelation of God in the person of Jesus Christ, we come to the sufficiency, the, the fulfillment of God speaking to humans. No longer is it bit by bit by this prophet or that prophet or a little message from such and such a prophet or this prophetess said something. 
It's now the full explanation of who God is and what his plans and purposes are for you. And that's what the New Testament is. The New Testament is not an add-on to Jesus. The New Testament is the expression of Jesus. For Jesus sends his spirit upon his disciples that they might make known what it is that he has told them. That they might make known to us his plans, his purposes, his truth, whatever he taught them. And so with the scriptures, you have all that God needs to say to us. There are all kinds of people who lead you astray in Christianity. There's the, the gospel minus people and the gospel plus people. Now, the gospel minus people you all know about, that's fairly straightforward. People are saying, oh, no, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Jesus didn't die for your sins. Jesus wasn't God. Jesus wasn't... They're people who are taking away from what the Bible says about God and about Jesus and about the gospel. But just as dangerous are the gospel plus people who say to you, well, you've got Jesus, that's fantastic, but have you heard about this experience? And have you done this? And have you done that? And are you keeping the law? Have you been circumcised? Are you keeping... And so they add on to the gospel. Now, they are as dangerous as the people who take away from the gospel. In the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have all that we need for a life of godliness and holiness, to live the life that God wants us to do. And our guidance is to be found in the scriptures because the scriptures are sufficient. Everything you need to know is contained here. There's nothing more you need to know to live a godly life in Christ Jesus than you can find in the scriptures. That's an incredible principle upon which to operate. Because most of the people who want guidance, most of the books about guidance, most of the advice about guidance is gospel plus guidance. They say, well, of course, the, you know, the Bible says what the Bible says. But that doesn't help you in your decisions today. Now, in your decisions today, what you do is go and ask a friend, go and ask your pastor, wait till there's a dream, put out a fleece. There's all kinds of mechanisms of, of guidance that, that are available to you. Uh, one man I know said that he was in Indonesia, he, he was there not knowing whether God existed or not. And so he said, well, if God exists, let a fly come and land on my hand at this moment. And a fly did. And he said, but I don't know which God it is. If it goes upwards, then it's one God. If it goes down, it's the other. And so he became a Muslim. The way in which God guides is not by putting flies on your hand and running them up or down your arm. That's, that's an irrelevance. Now, God can guide by putting flies on your hand and running up and down your arm, but why would he? He has said everything he needs to say in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why does he now need to send you a fly? Isn't Jesus good enough? Weren't you around there to see the fly that was on Jesus? That you now need your own fly? And does God only reveal himself by flies lying on hands now? I mean, it's an absurdity, but yet it's the kind of ways in which people want guidance. But remember... There's a big difference between guidance and obedience. Or should I say more accurately, there's a big difference between guidance and disobedience. Big difference. If God says everything I need to know here, 
then the question is not how am I to be guided, but am I going to be obedient? Because the message is already here. Why do I want more guidance that is here? Is it because I don't like what's said? Is it because I want to do something different? Is it because now that I know that I'm only allowed one wife in this book, I want to check out the Quran to see if I could get away with having more than one? Because, I mean, if everything you said to you, everything you need to know has already been said, then read, mark, learn and inwardly digest what God has said in his scriptures. Lay it on your heart and your mind and learn obedience to what is already there. For he will be guiding you in every step of life. Now, another principle that is involved that flows from that is, if it is true, which I believe it is, that scripture is sufficient for everything you know, then you need to understand that scripture says more than you expect. You see, when you first hear that scripture is sufficient for everything, you say, yeah, but there's a whole host of stuff that's not here. Should I marry Mary or should I marry Betty? Or should I work for, for Commonwealth Bank or should I work for, for Westpac? Or should I do engineering or should I do social work? Or should I do a double degree in social work engineering? <laughs> Is anybody doing a double degree in social work engineering? I just... Good, I can be rude all week to social work engineers then, can't I? Okay. I mean, what? It's not here. What I, the questions I have that I want God to guide me in aren't here. Well, there's two things I want to say about it. One is, the scripture tells a lot more than you might imagine about what you should do or what you shouldn't do. For example, are there any instructions here in the Bible in how to drive a car? You know, well, no, they didn't have cars in those days, so of course there can't be any instructions, any guidance how to drive your car. But of course there are, friends, aren't there? Romans chapter 13, verse 1, tells us to be obedient to the government. Well, that would change a whole set of driving patterns, wouldn't it? Not amongst you, dear brothers and sisters, but... You've got to drive in accordance with the law if you're a Christian because the Christian is committed to obeying the law. And so the way I drive the car must be the way in which the law lays down for me to drive the car. And the scripture says, love your neighbour as yourself. And so the way in which I treat the other motorists on the road is generously and kindly as I would want them to treat me. I see them jumping in front of me along Parramatta Road the worst road in Sydney to drive on, I think. I avoid it if I can possibly avoid it. But if you're in Parramatta Road, people are always jumping in in front of you. Instead of me blasting the horn and, and making rude gestures to them, instead of me whipping around in front of them and jamming in front of them and whacking on the brakes and letting them hit my toe bar, instead of those kinds of actions, you see, I say to myself, well, he must be in a terrible hurry. He must have some problem he's got to attend to quickly. Let me ease back and give him more room. And why don't I pray for him? Because he's pretty upset the way he's driving. This is, he's actually in danger and he's endangering other people. This is a good time to pray for his safety. Fortunately, mercifully, I don't have to close my eyes to pray. <laughs> uh, that wouldn't be loving my neighbour as myself to close my eyes and bow my head while praying. Mind you, the speed the traffic goes at, uh, along Parramatta Road, who could tell? But anyway, 
I can pray then. And then also, if, if he doesn't calm down, and if I don't give him space, and if God doesn't change his heart, he'll go home and take it and his wife and his kids, won't he? So I really need to pray for where he's going to and the family he's going home to and look after that. You see, the Bible tells me how to treat my fellow motorists. Not only my fellow motorists, my passengers. I'm to love my neighbours myself. My passengers are my neighbours. If every time I come up to a set of traffic lights, I jam the brakes on at the last time, last moment and send my passengers forward into the windscreen, I'm not really loving them. I need to learn to drive the car in such a way that they're not going to get car sick that they're not going to actually have the skin burst through the knuckles. So the knuckles burst through the skin, you know, as they grasp hold and plunge their foot right through the, 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 the well at the front of the car as they whack their foot on the imaginary brake. Because I've got to make them feel comfortable and at ease and relaxed, and that therefore affects the way I drive my car. That is, the Bible gives me principles and ways of living that affect everything that matters in life, which leads me to the other little sub-point here. That is, the sufficiency of Scripture therefore means that whatever matters matter are in the Scriptures and whatever matter don't matter is not in the Scriptures. Now, I know there's a certain circularity in this argument so far, but that's okay with me. Whatever matters matter are in the Scriptures. And if it's not there, then it doesn't matter. Should I wear a blue shirt or should I wear a green shirt? Well, there's a lot of Bible study I need to do, but at the end of my Bible study, I can reasonably come to the conclusion that it's not there. And so you know what? It doesn't matter. I could wear a blue one. I could wear a green one. I could even wear a blue and green one. Although this old thing about blue and green should never be seen without something in between. But leaving aside that aesthetic from a previous generation, I could wear... Because it's not there. It doesn't say. It doesn't matter whether I wear braces or a belt on my trousers. It's, it's not mentioned in any way. Though there are some men who wear trousers so low that they are not loving their neighbours. <laughs> but giving them considerable anxiety. <laughs> and belt or, or braces would be helpful. <laughs> to say nothing of both. So whatever matters matter, whatever matter matters is in the scriptures. And if it's not in the scriptures, do whatever you like. Flip a coin. Do one thing one day, the opposite the next day. It doesn't matter. You've got to see that there are certain things that don't matter. How you drive your car does. How you treat your passenger does. How you treat your fellow motorist, that, that matters. But what coloured car you drive, take your choice. Now, the talks then in these evening sessions are all going to be about the areas of life, the application of these principles, the principle of the sufficiency of Scripture, to different areas of life. Areas for which we could talk about as guidance. And what we're going to do is look and see what the scripture says about the big areas of life or about church or about marriage or about work or about God's mission plan. We're going to be looking at these different areas tonight on the mission. That's because 
Tonight I want to give you the big picture. Now, different people have different ways of thinking. There's their way and there's the right way. And their ways of thinking often are that I can't quite understand, but I've met people like this and I presume that there are some here tonight. Their way of thinking is the, the Lego block way of thinking. They like to get all the Lego blocks together and each one they investigate and put in a, in, in a row and they build and build and build and when they've got every piece of information they say, ah, look, that's the picture. There are others of us, the normal, who like to know, what am I trying to build first? And then I can choose out what to do with each piece of Lego block and then each piece makes sense to me because I'm looking for a window and I'm now looking for a door because I've got to save the red bits for the roof because that's what I'm trying to build. It's like the jigsaw puzzle. Are you the kind of person who likes to do the jigsaw pieces puzzle without looking at the picture or are you like the po people who like to look at the picture in order to do the jigsaw puzzle? Me, I like to look at the picture. I like to do the outside rims and then I like to hand it over to my wife from there on in. <laughs> because I'm so red, green, colour blind, I can never see which piece is there anyway, so it's a useless exercise. But I'm really good on the edge because there's flat bits and I can do that bit anyway. And Hey, I don't want to ruin my wife's fun. Uh, so, but what kind of thinking do you do? I find it really helpful to have the big picture because then I can make sense of little bits. Whereas when I'm just given little bits... I don't know what to do with them. Unfortunately, most people in life in Australia are only ever given the little bits. I, I grow up and as I grow up, I find out I've got a mum and I found out I've got a dad and I found out I've got a brother. And then just when I'm enjoying life and getting the hang of it, they send me off to school. And then when I'm at school, I find out that there are kids older than me and they learn this and they do that and you've got to stand in lines and go here and go there. But nobody actually tells me why I'm at school or why I'm in Australia, or why I have a mum, and why I have a dad, and why on earth I was given brothers. I, that bit's really difficult to understand sometimes, depending on your brothers. And so you, you're never told why, you're never told what, you're never told, I went through school doing maths and doing arithmetic, and I liked doing it, it was good fun, I could show off in front of the other kids and the rest of it, but nobody actually explained to me why you do maths. It wasn't until I was in my 40s that I actually read a book on the philosophy of maths. And then I said, ah, that's what it's about. I now had to do the computation. I knew how to do the Lego blitz, but I didn't know what the whole exercise of mathematical reasoning was about or why you would be interested in mathematical reasoning. And I kind of feel like if they'd told me that at the beginning, I would have made better sense of maths and I would have done better at maths. But... That may not be possible because maybe in my juvenile brain I couldn't have taken on the philosophy of maths. Mind you, the philosophy of maths and calculus, I think I'd prefer to study the philosophy. There's always more ground for waffle in philosophy than in maths. <laughs> Even on the philosophy of maths there's more ground for waffle and I have an arts degree. So, <laughs> where do you get the big picture of life? Where does your marriage fit in with your career? Where do the kids fit in with the marriage? Where does church fit in with that? Where does family fit in that? Where does staying in Australia or where does going overseas fit into that? Where does music fit into it? Where does sport fit into it? What part of, how does my life hold together as an entity, as a unity? 
I mean, I'm born, I grow old, I get married, I have kids, I get older still, they have kids, I die. What? What was it all about? Where was I going? Was the whole of life just standing in the crematorium queue, waiting for my turn to be put in the oven? What, what, what is the point of it all? Where is it going? That is not the question that you're given. You don't know the big picture. If you don't know the big picture, then each day is like another piece of Lego. I wonder where this one goes. Well, it's a nice colour, and I've enjoyed it. I'll put it there. And here comes another day, and I've got to work out this one and what that's about. Now, we Christians have a terrific advantage. It's called the Scriptures. God has revealed to us from the beginning what is the end and what God is doing in the route between the beginning and the end and where we fit in that whole schema of what he's doing and what is expected of us. It's all laid out for us which then makes guidance questions about today or tomorrow or next week much simpler to understand. So we look at the big pictures in the evening sessions on a couple of particular topics, but tonight the big picture all told. And so tonight really is on the Bible overview. And I want to give it to you in this big sweep. For we're told in the scriptures about the creation and the new creation. That is about the beginning and about the beginning of the end. The beginning of what God is going to do next at the end of the world. And so in Genesis 1, as you well know, you're, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That, that's where it all starts. But we're told in 2 Peter chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 3, of the time that is coming when uh, the whole world will be dissolved and the earth and the works that are on it will be exposed. And then what kind of people are we to be? Chapter 3, verse 11 of 2 Peter. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for, hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So God has created the world and then in our sinfulness he has brought the world into condemnation which is going to ultimately lead to its dissolution and destruction and the creation of a new heavens and a new earth which will be unlike this heaven and this earth because instead of sin and judgment righteousness is going to reign. And so we are waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to bring the judgment of the world and the end of the world and the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth in which we will live in righteousness. What is this creation then all about? Come with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians chapter 1. And I am reading from verse 15. It's just talked about the Lord Jesus Christ, the beloved Son of God, in verses 13 and 14. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, and visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body and the church. 
He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Notice he's the firstborn twice. The word firstborn does not mean born first. The word firstborn means heir. Now, usually in the ancient world, and the royal family is still part of the ancient world, whoever is born first inherits the whole estate. And then the second born is put into the army, and the third born is put into the clergy, and the fourth born is sent out to the colonies. And the fifth born's a criminal, and so he goes out there too. But <laughs> the firstborn gets the dukedom, the earldom, gets the estate, gets the kingship, gets the everything. That's who the firstborn is. Generally, it's the one that's born first, but it doesn't have to be, especially if the firstborn was a girl. She mightn't be. And so if Princess Anne was older than Prince Charles, Prince Charles would still be the firstborn. You may say that's unfair, you may say that's unjust, and you may say whatever you like, but that's the way it is. The word firstborn means the heir. Who is he? The Lord Jesus Christ is the image of God, which is kind of funny because God's invisible. It's very hard to have an image of an invisible, isn't it? But he is the very image of God. When you see Jesus, you see God. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn, the heir of which part of creation? All of creation. What does it mean to be he's the firstborn of all creation? Verse 16 explains it for you. For by him all things were created... When we say all things, we mean things in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, you name it, he's the heir of it. All things were created by him and through him and for him. God made the universe for Jesus. Are you part of the universe? Then you have been made for Jesus. That's who or whom or what you have been made for. You weren't made for yourself. You were made for Jesus. That's what you've been made for. Now, this is a profoundly Christian idea. Surprise, surprise, it comes from the Bible. But when people move away from the Christian idea, they don't realize both the stupidity and the idolatry they move to. Take, for example, the girl guides. Any girl guides amongst us here? No one's willing to confess. <laughs> Not one. Explains it. That's why they've gone off the rails. You weren't there. <laughs> Not my fault. I wasn't allowed. Girl guides. They've just given up getting all the girls to give promise of fulfilling their duty to God and Queen. They got rid of the Queen. You may or may not agree with that, but they've got rid of the queen, but they've also got rid of their duty to God. They don't have to have a duty to God there. What they've got to do is promise to be true to themselves. You replace God with self. You see, it, there's the alternative. But we have been made for God. Well, not just for God, but for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's for whom we have been made. We haven't been made for ourselves, by ourselves, or through ourselves. Why was he born so beautiful? Why was he born at all? Because he had no say in it, no say in it at all. You didn't one day in the great ether of the universe decide, I'm going to become a human. 
You had no say in it at all. Your parents brought you forth because God gave them the ability to do so because God was making you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's an important thing to understand here for a moment, friends, because manufactured items is not how we like to think of ourselves. I mean, this lectern, this this table, the chair you're sitting on, they're manufactured items. But I don't like thinking of myself as a manufactured item. I like to think of myself as a person. Whereas this table is a table. But ponder for a moment what meaning you have. You see, if you are but an accident, you don't have any meaning. You're here because 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 you're here. That, that's an accident. Accidents don't have any significance or any meaning, any rhyme or any reason. They just happen. If you just happened, well then, you don't mean anything. To have meaning, you actually need something outside yourself. Here's the problem with the girl guys. They're going to live true to themselves, whatever that means. But you see, this thing has meaning, not in and of itself, but its meaning comes from its creator and its owner. It was created in order to hold speakers' books and notes for him. That's what it was created for. That's why it bends the way it does. That's why it actually has the slope that it does. That's why it's as big as it is. It was designed, this is a very lousy table. And is a pathetic chair. I wouldn't want to sit on it. What's more, it wouldn't want me to sit on it either. <laughs> but not only it wouldn't, but the owner of it wouldn't want me to. Because the meaning is not only given by the maker, but also by the owner, isn't it? For the owner might say, yes, well, that's been made for this purpose, and you're only to use it for this purpose. This table, well, it's been made for lots of purposes, haven't it? But I'm going to use it as a chair. <laughs> there you are. And I presume the owner's not going to get upset with me using it as a chair. I can if I want to, because he will let me. It's his to do with as he pleases. And if he wants to have people sitting on round tables as chairs, well, he can do that if he wishes to. But it's not a very good chair, because the bloke who made it, made it the wrong height and with not enough leg, it just doesn't work as a chair very much. Whereas what you're sitting on does. Because you have been made, you have a meaning. If you're not made, you're a meaningless accident. The trouble with having a meaning, though, is it's not your meaning. It's the meaning of the manufacturer. It's the meaning of the owner. That's your meaning. That's why people hate creation. Because they want to be true to themselves, like good little girl guides. They don't want to have anybody defining them identifying who they are, what they are, what they should be, how their bodies work, for what purposes they were created with ears and eyes. I want to hear with my eyes and I want to see with my ears because I am the master of me. Profoundly stupid. And at the moment can't see or hear anything. But if I want to do it that way, that's my choice. It's my ears, my eyes. I can do with them anything I like to do with them, which is completely daft. But then again, if you turn your back on God, you will be completely daft. It's the fool who says in his heart there is no God. 
But as soon as you say there is God, then I'm not free to do with myself what I want to do with myself because I have been made by him and for him. And so therefore I need to know why has he made me the way he has? What does he want from me? What does he want me to do? What does he want to... My life is... Jesus is the one for whom I have been made. My friends, here we are in the first night and we've hit already the Copernican Revolution. Now, it comes to mid-year conference every year, but we've hit it first night. That is, you can make a lot of sense of the world thinking that the world is there, central, and the sun is going around it. But it's not true. The world is going around the sun. It looks like the sun's moving. Tomorrow morning I'll see it rise and I'll see it set. And tomorrow afternoon. And you say, no, no, the world's rotating. But I talk about a sunrise, I talk about a sunset. It doesn't make sense to say I saw a beautiful world rotate this morning. <laughs> and I'm really looking forward to the romantic earth rotate in the evening. <laughs> it just doesn't, it doesn't work, does it? But you and I know, I hope, that thanks to Mr Copernicus and others, that actually the earth is not the centre of this system, the sun is. And the earth is going around the sun, not the sun going around the earth. And while you can make a lot of sense of the universe looking at it the wrong way, it's still the wrong way and in the end you can't make sense of it. That was the problem. It doesn't actually work. And you have to get the perspective right. We think we are here, the centre of the universe. Well, I don't know about you, but I am the centre of the universe. You're just there for me. Well, I am the centre of the universe and God is there to serve me if I want to have him. If I don't want to have him, I don't have to have him. But if I want to have a God, I have a God. And he's there to serve me. If I'm in trouble, I say, God, can you help me here? If I haven't done my study, I say, God, can you still get me through the exams or at least let my father have a heart attack so that before I, he gets the results, not after or something or other. I, I've got some, but I've got God out there doing things for me because I am the centre of the universe. But that, of course, is absurd. You're not the centre of the universe. You're not the centre of the universe. I'm not the centre of the universe. God is the centre of the universe. Christ is the firstborn of all creation. Now, let's start looking at the universe as if Christ is who he is. The one who made us. The one through whom and by whom God has made us. The one for whom God has made us. You have been made, each and every individual here, for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now how am I supposed to live? And it's not only all of creation, but it's also of the next creation, because the other firstborn there is, he is the first, he is before all things, in him all things hold together, he is the head of the body of the church, he's the beginning of the firstborn from the dead. So it's not only is he the heir of this world but he's the heir of the world to come as well he's the heir of life and eternity he's the heir of the creation and the new creation so that Christ is the heir of all eternity you have been made and will be remade for him that is an incredible passage isn't it 
Well, let's skip on to another one. Inside the big picture of creation and recreation, God chooses one family, the family of Abraham. Come back to Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 12. You'll find Genesis at the beginning of your Bibles, unless you've got a very strange Bible. And if it's not there at all, you've been dudded. Get your money back. Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you. Are you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed Genesis 1 to 11 is the kind of introduction to the Bible and Genesis 12 verse 1 to 3 is when the Bible story takes off that's when the narrative happens you know and you watch a movie first of all sometimes even when the credits are coming up you know you see that it's out there in Texas and say oh it's a western and then you see the person with the white hat and you say oh, well he's the goody and he bends down pats the dog absolutely he's the goody and then you know you see that he's a, you see that he's a cowboy rather than that he's an Indian and you see Indians with white hats don't work and then you see that he, he's not a rancher but he's still out there and so you set the scene and then suddenly man with black hat arrives and the drama is starting and off you take Genesis 1 to 11 is all that kind of introductory stuff. And then Genesis 12, you hit Abram. And God chooses Abram and says, I'm going to do three things for you, Abram. I'm going to make you a mighty nation. I'm going to give you this land. And through you, all the nations of the world will find their blessing or their cursing. That's the storyline of the Bible. It's the storyline of Abram. As you go through the rest of Genesis, you'll find him dealing with other nations and trying to get this promised land and desperately trying to have children which he can't do if you remember because he's the father of a mighty nation he can't have any kids in fact his name Abram means daddy and he hasn't got any children which is pretty embarrassing every time people say who are you he says oh my name's dad oh how many kids you got none (laughs) you know it's just that kind of difficult name that you have but after a while God says to him no Abram's not good enough for name for you you're going to be Abraham which means instead of being called dad you're going to be called big daddy and so from there on he goes introducing himself as Big Daddy and how many children has he got? None. When he finally gets a child, his name is Isaac, which means a joke. And, well, it is a joke. You're 100 years old and you have a baby. That's a joke. And there, there is only one son out of all this and you think, what? It's true. A mighty nation and the promised land, the only bit of the promised land he owns is his wife's funeral plot. And, but he, he does own that. And as he deals with people, well, yes, he brings blessing upon them and he brings cursing upon them and you follow the story and you realise it's not actually going to be fulfilled in Abram's lifetime. And so all the promises are made again to Isaac and it's not fulfilled in Isaac's lifetime. And then all the promises are made to Isaac's sons, Jacob and Esau, and Esau's pushed aside, Jacob's the chosen one and all the promises are given to him. He at least had lots of kids, 12 of them. And uh, uh, that's a good number. And uh, I like that number. Now I remember my grandchildren. So he has these 12 kids and they go down into Egypt and then come back and then they come back out of Egypt, a mighty nation, and they come back in and, and they take the promised land, the land that was promised to Abraham in the first place. And then they grow into a huge kingdom under King David when they are ruling over all the Middle East under David and Solomon. In fact, Solomon's fame is so great that the woman from Sheba down in Africa comes all the way up to see 
see his wisdom and his might and his power and his wealth. And when she finishes, she says, I was only told half the story. It's bigger and better than I ever imagined. And so it looks like Abraham's promises are fulfilled. And then it all collapses. Solomon's son's an idiot uh, called Rehoboam. And he raises taxes, and you know what happens to people who raise tax? They get thrown out of government, don't they? Yes, check out the little prophecy there. And <laughs> he raises taxes, and so Jeroboam takes off 10 of the 12 tribes off to the, uh, off to the northern state of Israel. And so you've now got two groups of people occupying the promised land, the two southern ones around Rehoboam's family, and the 10 northern around Jeroboam's family. And then a couple of hundred years later, the 10 northern tribes get wiped out by the Assyrians. And then a couple of years later, the two southern tribes get wiped out by the Babylonians. When the Assyrians wipe out people, they transport everybody everywhere. So they get people from elsewhere and drop them into Israel, and they get the Israelites and drop them elsewhere, and they break up the families, they break up the nations, so the ten lost tribes are lost. They do not appear later in America for the Mormons to find. That's a, an unbelievable furphy, but never mind. They're, they're lost, they're spread across the Assyrian Empire. The two southern kings, the two southern tribes, they're taken to Babylon in slavery, all in one city, and from there, 70 years later, they come back again into the Promised Land and they drivel on through the period of the Greeks, the Seleucid, the Ptolemies, the Seleucids, the Ptolemies, and into the Romans, and then you come to Jesus. There's the Old Testament for you in just a few minutes' story, you see. There's the, the big picture of what's happening. But from Abraham to David, you're on the ascendancy. And then from David down to Jesus, you're going downhill. This is the age of the prophets, the downhill age. But the prophets, are, they seem almost double-minded. Because while they keep saying it's going to get worse, 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 they also keep saying, but it will be better, but it will be better, it will be better. But their better is better than better. They say you're going to lose everything, but when you regain it, it'll be bigger and better than anything you've ever lost. You think Solomon's temple's great, you haven't seen the new temple. It's going to be bigger and better than anything Solomon ever built. In fact, the river of life itself is going to flow out under the main gate. I mean, that's pretty impressive to get the river of life flowing out of your main gate. Those of you doing architecture, you try and invent one like that. You just try and find the river of life to start with, let alone get it out into your main gate. But it's, it's going to be fantastic, this thing that's coming. But in the meantime, you're going to be destroyed. And so the, the Old Testament finishes with this kind of wide diversion where everything... It's going to be wonderful and nothing's going to work. And then the Lord Jesus Christ comes and says, this is the kingdom of God. Now it has arrived. And nothing looks more preposterous than a man being crucified naked, saying, today you will be with me in paradise. When that thief on the cross turned to Jesus and said, remember me, when you come in your kingdom, Never did a man look less like a king. There he is naked, bleeding, dying. That's your king? And yet, of course, it was the king. Okay, here's a little test for you. Bible test for you. I want you to be very serious. Write it down in your telephones or on your piece of paper. I want you to finish the verse. We'll put it up. Galatians 3. Finish the verse.
Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come... Finish the rest of the verse. Those of you, of course, know your memory verses, will immediately just jot it down. But you're no help. I want people to think the way the Apostle thinks. You're Christians, he's a Christian, he thought, you think... You understand the Apostle, don't you? You could guess what the Apostle is likely to say, can't you? What would he say? Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come... I don't see too many of you writing. Have a guess. You don't have to know it. Just guess what you think the Apostle might now say so that in Christ Jesus... He died so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come. See, one of the ways of knowing that you've understood the Bible is when you can finish a verse. You know, someone will really understand you when halfway through the sentence they finish it for you. It irritates you, doesn't it? Don't do it. But when they get it right, you think, yeah, he, he really is on my wavelength. Yeah, she really understands me because she could actually finish my sentence for me. Well, it's the Apostle. You're a Christian. What would the Apostle be saying? Had enough time? Deep in embarrassment? Okay, well, let's look at the rest of the text. It says, well, that... How are we going to move that up or whatever it is you're going to do to it? Because I had fewer lines than you did, but you're going to get it for me, are you? You're brilliant wonderful people that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Holy Spirit I think is the rest of it isn't it that is Jesus died on the cross so that the promises to Abraham might be fulfilled by the Gentiles receiving the Holy Spirit Is that what you thought Jesus was doing on the cross? I suspect most of us don't. That's why I picked this verse. I could have picked a dozen others, but I picked this one. That is not how we today would finish the verse. That's not how most churches would. That's not how most Christians would. That just shows we are out of step with the Apostle. For to the Apostle, it was really important that the promises to Abraham should find their fulfilment and the reason Jesus died on the cross was to fulfill the promises to Abraham. That's why he died. Uh, Let me show it to you again. Come across to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. Friends, Romans 15. Verse 8, Romans 15. Verse 8. For I tell you, Sorry, I'll give you time to find it. Clergymen love the rustle of paper, especially during the offertory hymn. Are we ready? <laughs> Romans fifteen eight, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that is to the Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Jesus became a Jew and fulfilled what was required of the Jew and died as a Jew in order that 
the promises given to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob about the Gentiles being saved might come true. That is an understanding of the centrality of the Lord Jesus Christ in the events of the history of the Bible. That is, from creation to the new creation, Jesus is the very image of the invisible God. From Abraham to the fulfilment of the Abrahamic promises, we find Jesus at the centre. Come back to that Galatians 3 passage and see it there, Galatians 3. Galatians 3. Open your Bibles to it this time. Pick it up, verse 16. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It doesn't say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So the promise is to Abraham and his offspring, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who is to receive the promises of Abraham, a mighty nation, owning the promised land, blessing to all the nations of the world. Pick it up a little later then in verse 26, 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. For as many as you were baptised into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. My guess is if you and I were writing this, we would stop at the end of verse 28. Would we have added verse 29? I suspect not. Hardly ever do you hear verse 29 quoted. Verse 28 is often quoted. We're all one in Christ Jesus. When the reason Paul wrote we're all one in Christ Jesus was to show that we are all offspring of Abram. For if you are in Christ, then you are in the offspring of Abram. For that was God's purpose. That is, God is sovereignly working his purposes out in this world. And there is a big picture taking place, and you have a place in it. But if you don't know what the big picture is, you won't understand your place. And if you don't understand your place, it's very hard to know what you're supposed to do or not to do, where you're supposed to go or what you're supposed to do. For God is sovereignly working in everything. Let me show it to you in terms that is easier for you to grasp. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. God is at work in everything for our good because God is sovereign. God is king. God is working his purposes out. I'd mentioned Ephesians 1, but you're studying it. Romans 8, verse 26. No, 28. Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. There is God's big program with you written in. I miss me. Have a look in. 
God is at work in everything, not some things, everything, all things. There is nothing outside the working of God. Number of hairs on your head, under God's control. Sparrow falls to the ground, under God's control. Blade of grass grows, under God's control. Everything that is happening and everything that ever will happen is under God's control. God is working all things for your good. What's your good? What does that mean? See, when you have troubles in life, and you will, by the time you're 40, most of you have gone through major troubles. That just happens. Rarely do people get through 40 without major significant problems in life. When, when you go through, people read this verse to you and say, that's all right, God's working everything for your good. And so it's kind of like a reverse country and western song. You know, your dog will return, you'll find your guitar, your car will be fixed up and your girlfriend will come home. Because all country and western songs are about losing your girlfriend, your car, your dog and your guitar, aren't they? <laughs> but God's at work in everything for your good, so you'll get them all back, won't you? So if you ever want to know the good things that you can find in country and western music, just play the records backwards. <laughs> I don't know if playing backwards is easy now that we've moved out of records. It was always easier with a kind of gramophone, wasn't it? But it, don't show me. I, anyway. What does it mean? God is at work in good. I hear you're very sick. That's all right. God's at work in everything for your good. You'll get better. No, that's not what it means. For look what the text says. Look, look. God's all things working for your good for, the word for means because, for, those who are called according to his purpose, that's earned for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. By the way, folks, the Bible teaches predestination. Just thought I'd let you into that. Little secret. This is one of the things many people have to deal with when they come to media conference is this concept of predestination. It's part of the Copernican revolution, you see. When I am the center of the universe, I determine whether God is or isn't going to be ruling in my life. But if God is the center of the universe, he determines whether I'm going to be part of his world or not. It depends who you think God is, you see. The Bible thinks God's God, which is kind of interesting seeing he wrote it. And so <laughs> predestined is there. Uh, again, I've mentioned Ephesians 1, but hey, I'm not allowed to. So, he predestined, but what has he predestined us to be? To be conformed to the image of his son. That is the good for which God is at work in everything for you. It's not that when God is working everything for your good, you're going to be rich, famous, healthy. You're going to have a harbour view. You're going to have a wife, a husband, two kids, uh, one dog, uh, two cars. It, that's not your good. Your good is to be like Jesus. That is your good. And he was known as the man of sorrows, the suffering servant. There's no indication that you're going to miss out on sorrow and suffering by becoming like Jesus. There's every indication you will get sorrow and you'll get suffering by being like Jesus. But the good that God is at work in everything is to make you like Jesus. But even then, we haven't gone the whole way with Copernicus. 
for look again at what the text says. Don't let me get away with being sloppy with the text of scriptures, friends. Look at what the verse says. Why does he want us to be conformed to be like Jesus? For he has a purpose beyond you and beyond me because we are not the center of the universe. To be conformed like Jesus in order that he might be the firstborn amongst many brothers, in order that he might have the inheritance of many of us. We have been made for him and we are being remade for him. All humans have been made for the Lord Jesus Christ and all Christians are being remade for the Lord Jesus Christ. Your purpose in life is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it comes in two forms. One, your status as Christian person. You used to be a sinner, you've become a saint. You used to be a slave, you've now become a king. You used to be unholy, you've now become a priest. Because in the Lord Jesus Christ we have been reborn. But it's also our character. Now that I am a Christian, not only am I now one of Jesus' people but I am going to be slowly changed and transformed into being more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ so that when he returns, people will be astonished and they'll say, look at Philip Jensen. It's nothing like him. He just looks like Jesus. Now, that will be astonishing. It'll not only astonish them, it'll astonish me. Say nothing of my mother. Come across to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. For there is Paul praying for the end of the world and what we're going to be like in the end of the world, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Verse 9 talks of the terrible things of the suffering of eternal punishment when people are taken away from the Lord and from the glory of his might. And this terrible day of judgment, verse 10, when Jesus comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at, among all who have believed, because our testimony to you is believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every good resolve, every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. See, when, when the Lord Jesus returns, we will be like his, like him. And so we will bring glory to him and we will be glorified by him. What will I look like when I am at my absolute peak? Well, it's not like I am at the moment. I know I'm very impressive. I understand that. But this is but nothing compared to what I will look like when the Lord Jesus Christ returns and I am finally seen as his and people say you look fantastic but you know what else they'll say God you're terrific that you could do that to Philip Jensen now that is a miracle that is astonishing that is amazing you see what's being said here on that day to be glorified in his saints and marvel that among those who believed. So I'm giving you the big picture now. The big picture of God creating the universe for his son, God redeeming through Abraham the fallen people of Adam through his son, 
God taking you, predestining you to be his, and if his, then to change your life so that you'll be more and more like him, so that when the new creation comes at the end of the world, you'll be just like Jesus in all his glory. You will be glorified in him and he will be glorified in you because you'll be so transformed to be like him. But you'll notice the whole thing is centered on Christ. All the plans and purposes of God, the creation, the recreation, the redemption, all centers on the Lord Jesus Christ. Our transformation centers on the Lord Jesus Christ. Come with me to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians chapter 1. Paul's in prison. Not a happy place to be in prison in Rome, in the Roman prisons. They were holding prisons, really. After a short trial, you either got executed or put into slavery or sent away. They didn't have long-term prisons like we do. And so they didn't bother with any of the home comforts and normal prisons. And so Paul doesn't know what's going to happen to him. He doesn't know if he's going to be executed or he's going to live. And people are out preaching the gospel out of all kinds of bad motives. And he says, well, it doesn't matter. Just provided Jesus is proclaimed, that's all that matters. Verse 18, verse 19, end of verse 18. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know, verse 19, that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honoured in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. If I'm no longer in the flesh, that means fruit... Sorry, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labour for me. Yet, which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. See, the apostle, he doesn't know whether he wants to live or die. If I die, I'm with Christ. If I live, I'm serving Christ. Which is better? Well, to die and be with Christ is actually better. Yet on the other hand, if I'm really like Christ, well, I want to live for you because that's what Christ did. You know, it's the one person he's not living for, don't you? He's not a girl guide. Not living for himself. He's living for Christ. He's living for Christ. And if you're here living for Christ, you're living for others. Now, this is a huge, different way of thinking about life. Massive, different way of thinking about how we live but before we hit the rubber really on the road it's time to have a stop at a sing isn't it okay i'm up to point three and we're on the home stretch turn with me to luke chapter 24 luke chapter 24 two men just met the risen jesus on the road to emmaus and then, verse 36, they've, they've come back, told the apostles about what they've just seen. 
Verse 36 of Luke 24, and they were talking about these things. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it's I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marvelling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed to his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold I am sending the promise of my father upon you but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Well, here was the moment of his appearing. And it was an extraordinary moment of his appearing. It was the moment when he showed them himself risen. It's, it's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, it's such a startling thing they don't believe. Don't you love that little phrase? They disbelieved for joy. It was so exciting. It's literally too good to be true. That's the, the feeling they had about the moment. And I've never seen a dead person when they're walking around alive later. The ones I've seen that are dead, very dead, very cold, very lifeless, very motionless, don't speak, don't talk and certainly don't eat fish and they never kind of chat to me. You can understand why they thought this is a ghost, this is a spirit but he goes out of his way to show that it's not a ghost, not a spirit, touch, feel and then actually while they're so excited that they've seen the risen Jesus in all his glory he does the most mundane of things, sits down and has some fish, eats in front of them. This is a real body, a physical body, one that still you can put something in its mouth and it disappears. It's Jesus. And at that moment, you see, we then have the new age of the resurrection. The new creation has commenced. The end of the world has, in a sense, started from Abraham all the way up to David and Solomon. Wonderful. And then all the way down through the prophets, dreadful. And then the Lord Jesus Christ rises from the dead. And the new age has started. Age one, the introduction. Adam all the way to Abraham. Age two, the great promises being fulfilled historically. Age three, the prophets when everything is falling apart and now the final age. The, what's going to happen now? 
What, what do you expect now? What will turn up now? Is this the moment for the judgment of the world? The resurrection started, why not the judgment of the world? Are we now to meet God the Father as well as God the Son? What, what is going to happen now? The message of the moment is the program for the rest of history. That's where you and I live, in the rest. Right? We don't live BC, unless you're very old. We live AD, in the year of our Lord. Not AC, we don't live after Christ. Do you know why we don't live after Christ? Because you can't live after Christ. There is no after Christ. He's alive and alive forevermore. So there is no after evermore. So you can't live after Christ. We live AD in the year of the Lord Jesus Christ, which happens to be around 2012. But the rotation number is an irrelevance. It's the AD that matters, which is why you must never, ever write BCE and CE. Right? And if you lose marks for writing AD, lose them with pride and glory and joy, for you rejoice that you are being persecuted with the prophets of old. Because you believe in Christ Jesus, for there is no such thing as a common era. When's the common era? The Jews believe that dating starts from Moses. The Muslims believe it starts from, 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 uh, from Muhammad. The Hindus, they don't have dating, so it doesn't matter really. It starts from Krishna or anywhere. I mean, there is, never has been a common era. The Chinese have a different era. There's never been a common era. The reason why it's 2012 is because of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why it's 2012 now. When they ask you to write BCE and the rest, write AD in big letters, underlined. <laughs> Put a little footnote, take marks off me and I'll sue you. <laughs> no, I will glad to be persecuted. That would be a more Christian way of saying it. But do not put anything up. We live AD, we live in the year of the Lord. But what does the year of the Lord involve? What's going to happen in the year of the Lord? So he explains it to them, verse 44. Then he said, these are my words that I spoke with you while I was still with you. Remember what I said to you? Remember how I told you I was going to die? Well, I did. I told you I was going to be handed over to the Gentiles? Well, I was. I told you I'd be crucified? It happened. I also told you I would rise from the dead. Three days later, you forgot that bit. You didn't notice that bit. You were so hung up about the fact that I was going to be crucified, you didn't hear me say I was going to come back to life again. Well, I have. The resurrection started and it starts with me. The new creation starts and it starts with me. And it has happened. That's what has happened. I words I spoke to you. And the words I spoke to you were the same words that were written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets. You know, Jesus was a Bible man. Everything Jesus did, he did because he found it in his Bible. For the whole Old Testament told him what was to happen. That's how he knew what to do, because he read his Bible. He understood. You look at the number of times he quotes it, the number of times he alludes to it, the number of times he says it's to fulfill what was written by Moses, by Isaiah. By, this is what was to fulfill what was happened by Jeremiah. Jesus did it consciously to fulfill Old Testament prophecies. He knew what was to happen. Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, that's their way of saying the Old Testament, must be fulfilled. The little word must is emphatic in English. That's because there's a little Greek word behind it, they, which is emphatic in Greek. 
and the translation. If, it hasn't got, if your translation hasn't got the must in it, get rid of that. There are a good one up there in the Bible. So, but I think nearly every translation has it because you can't avoid it. It's so emphatic in the Greek. What has taken place had to take place, must take place, could not be anything else but take place because this was God's plan from the beginning. And this is what God promised would happen. And God always keeps his promise. And so it's happened. What must take place? Well, what was it that must take place? Well, then verse 45. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. I pray God will open your minds to understand the scriptures in these days that are with us. Because, you see, you can read the Bible, you can study it and still not get the point. It's so easy to do that. It's a work of the Spirit in our lives that opens our hearts and minds to understand what it is that God is saying. That's the exercise we're engaged in this week, to see what it was that had to take place, what was God's plan that had to happen. And so he opened their minds by explaining it to them. That's what I'm doing for you now. I'm explaining it to you so that you will understand what the Bible is saying. Of course, they had the Lord Jesus Christ to do that and the promise of the Spirit that was to come upon this particular group of people. I can only pray the Spirit will come upon you and apologize that I'm not as good a teacher as he. But that's what the exercise is. And that's why I want you to study it during the day. That's why I want you to read it in small groups, read it by yourself, think for a few days, understand what it is that must be fulfilled. So he opened their minds to understand what was it? One, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise. There's the two things, suffer and rise. The little word should is a continuation of the word must. The logic is there. This must happen, that that should happen. That this is what is going to happen. The Christ was to die. That was a, they had, it was there in the scriptures. Isaiah 53, Psalm 2, uh, Psalm 22. It was there in the scriptures, but they just didn't see it. You see, the Christ was to conquer and rule the universe. How can the Christ rule and conquer and rule the universe and die? For you and me, it's easy, isn't it? We know Jesus died and rose again. But put yourself back into their shoes before Jesus dies and rises again. I've got all these promises about the coming of the Christ who's going to rule over all the nations of the world. Well, I know how people do that. I'll join the army. I'll, I'll be behind him. But that's not how he's going to do it at all. He's going to do it in a way that no one's ever, ever thought of. He's going to do it by being the suffering servant who's going to die on the cross for the sins of other people. Because his kingdom is not a kingdom in this world. His kingdom is a different kind of kingdom altogether. They didn't get that. Even when he told them, they didn't get it. Well, now he's done it. And he's opening their minds and showing them all through the scriptures. It was always to be like this. But not only that the Christ should die... But also the Christ should rise from the dead. For the resurrection's also all through the Old Testament scriptures. And Jesus keeps showing them that the new age is a new age, not just of the rule of Jerusalem and Judah over the labouring Middle Eastern countries. No, no, it was the rule of God over all the nations of the world. And it wasn't just a, a rule for a thousand years, it was a rule for all time. 
So he's going to rule over all the nations of the world for all times. That's the kingdom that's going to happen. It's a kingdom of this life and of the life to come kind of kingdom. He's going to rise for the judgment. But there's a third step that is going to take place that is equally as much a part of the must as the first two steps. For if the Christ is to die for the sins of the whole world, and if the Christ is to rise to rule over the whole world, then thirdly, the message of his victory, the message of his death, the message of forgiveness, the message of judgment, the message of salvation must be spread through all the world. And so it goes on to say there, make sure that I'm telling what the Bible's saying here, and that repentance and forgiveness should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. He died that we would be forgiven. And so we must stop our sin. We must turn back from our willfulness. We must oppose our own rebellion. We must give up the fight against God. We're to repent and in repentance find forgiveness, pardon, mercy, acceptance. This forgiveness that he has won for us must be proclaimed to the world with people called upon to repent. And it's to be proclaimed not by the Lord Jesus and yet by the Lord Jesus. He will do it through his servants, but it's proclaimed by us. You see, you are my witnesses to do this very work of proclamation, says Jesus to his disciples. It's to be declared to the ends of the world, but this proclamation has to be in his name. That repentance and forgiveness is found in no other name than the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. My friends, this is a terribly exclusive, universalistic claim. It's terribly exclusive, isn't it? It's Jesus or nobody. You ponder it for me. You have to think of it for a moment. It must be that way, mustn't it? That is, if there was any other way to be saved other than by God seeing his own son die on the cross, wouldn't God have taken it? Why would God have his son go to hell if we could be saved in some other name or by some other method? That's what that that prayer of the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew's Gospel where he says, if there is any other way, take this cup from me. There was no other way. That's why he had to drink the cup to the very bottom. If there was any way, if you could save yourself by good works, then Jesus didn't die. If you could save yourself in the name of Krishna, then Jesus didn't have to die. If you could be saved in the name of Muhammad, then Jesus didn't have to die. But you can't be saved by them. You can't save yourself. And so it's in his name, and only in his name, that forgiveness and salvation comes. And therefore his name, has to be declared to everybody. Because it is such an exclusive claim, it is a universal claim. There's only one way to God, so everybody has to get in on the one way. There's no point saying, well, the Muslims, they've got their man to get to God. 
the Buddhists, well, they've got their enlightenment to get to Om, and, and the, the Hindus, well, they can follow Krishna or any of the other gods they want to follow, and up and, and you know, the, hey, the atheists, they can follow Marx. Everybody can get to their own destination, their own way. It's not like that. There's only one way. And if there's only one way, then everybody must come this way, because it's the only way. And so his name is to be preached to all nations. That was a very struggling thing for the Jews when they heard that, I can assure you. We thought we were the only nation, but now all the other nations get in on us. It took them a long time to understand that. But it starts with the Jews, beginning in Jerusalem to the ends of the world. Phase one, Adam to Abram. Phase two, Abram up to Solomon. Phase three, the prophets. Now we come to Jesus, risen from the dead, and we come to living AD. And what's living AD about? It's taking the name of Jesus to the ends of the earth, that men and women can find forgiveness for their sins and turn back and come into relationship with God before the Lord Jesus returns to judge the earth. That's the phase we now live in. Now remember, we want to try and work out... Am I going to marry Mary or, or, or Susie? Am I going to work for Commonwealth Bank? Or, I mean, we've got our questions. What I'm giving you tonight is where the big story is and where we live in it, right over here, in the AD bit. That's where we live, which will help us then making our decisions about whether we'll marry or not. Now, these people to whom Jesus is speaking in verse 48, they are his witnesses, because they're the ones who saw him. They saw him live, they saw him die, they saw him rise again. They're his witnesses like you and I are witnesses. But the reason they've got the Holy Spirit coming to them is because they're the witnesses. You see, you don't witness when everybody agrees with your evidence. You only call a witness when people disagree with the evidence. That's the only time you ever call a witness is when people are in opposition. So... Today was a sunny winter's day here in, in, in Karajong. Everybody agrees with that. We don't need to call a witness to kind of testify to the fact it wasn't raining and cloudy. It, it, it was sunny. But if someone said, well, it was snowing here today, a lot of people would say, no, no, it wasn't. And so then you'd call a witness and you'd say, you're mad, where were you? And witnesses, therefore, need strength to speak the truth because they always have to speak the truth in the face of opposition. That's why the Greek word for witness is martyr. That's where the concept of martyrdom comes from. You so speak the truth that people will kill you which means you need the Holy Spirit to strengthen you to do it. So that's what's saying, and you behold, you are witnesses, and behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, stay until he's come, which of course happens on the day of Pentecost. And then he leads them out, and the moment of his departure comes, when he blesses them, and sends them on their journey into the world, as he goes to his rightful place at the right hand of his Father, in all power and glory and honour 
to rule the universe for the rest of the time and to rule this world by his spirit through his gospel preachers. As he calls all the nations of the world to come into his kingdom. Which brings me to point four on the outline. Get with the program. Now, did you leave a lot of space on your outline pages for this? What a waste. Because the heading says it all, doesn't it? I've been outlining to you the program so that this week you'll get with the program. If you don't know what the program is, it's very hard to get with it, isn't it? But if you know what the program is, you can get with it. I, I'm sorry that some of you, I understand. I, I, mean, hard, I find this hard to believe about you, but I understand some of you don't like rugby union. Yes, I'd laugh at them too. Um, and so I don't know how to kind of translate this next illustration for you adequately. But think hockey, um, think netball, think soccer. I don't know how you can think of any of those kinds of things like you can with rugby, but that's the thinking man's game. But if you know the game plan, you don't have to say much to your fellow players. You watch the really good rugby players. They pass the ball without even looking because they know that their team member will be there. I saw one yesterday, the other day on television. He was running one way. He flicked the ball another way. He didn't even look. And his other man was running on a diagonal. It was just exactly at the right spot to catch the ball and catch the other side going the wrong footed. Wrong footed everybody. But he knew and the other bloke knew what the game plan was. And because they knew what the game plan was, they knew where to put the next foot. <laughs> if you don't know the game plan, and sometimes the way Australians play it, it's quite clear they don't. <laughs> but watch the All Blacks and you'll see it's done properly. Got any Kiwis here? Oh, just one. Yes. Good. Um, you watch them and they, they, they do it properly. They know intuitively, instinctively where the other person's going to be. It's just part of the discipline of understanding the nature of the game. Where are we going? How are we going to get there? What is the purpose? What is the program? I know what I've got to do. And different people in the team play very differently. Part of why I love rugby union is because there are really tall blokes in the second row and there are really short, fat fellas in the front row. And there's really little fellas around the halfback. And there are blokes who can kick and there are blokes who can run fast. And the big fat fellas don't have to because they have a scrum every now and then and everybody waits for them to catch up. <laughs> I like that position. Prop forward, it's a wonderful place to be. There's all kinds of different shapes of sizes and anatomies and skills, but they all play together for the common purpose. And they know what they are to do. And every now and then you see one of those big fat fellas out in the back line where he shouldn't be and they pass the ball to him and the whole thing collapses because he shouldn't have been there because that's not his job worse still is when he catches the ball and he kicks because they can't <laughs> and it's always bad 
they don't understand the game, they don't understand where they should be, they don't know what we're trying to do. I'm telling you the game plan. I'm telling you God's program, God's plan. I'm telling you because that's what Jesus tells us. This is where we fit in to the vast history of the universe. This is where we fit in, right here, the end of Luke 24. Now, if that's where we fit in, what are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about church tomorrow night, marriage Wednesday night, work Thursday night, and we'll come back to the plan Friday morning? All right, I'm going to play. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that in him we see you. We thank you for revealing yourself by him, your perfect son, your f the one in whom all your fullness dwelt. We thank you, Father, that we are not left in the dark. We're not left in a, a famine for the word of God. We're not left in the darkness, but that you have shone the light of the knowledge of yourself into our hearts in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for this terrific gift of wisdom that you have given to us that we might know your plan to unite all things under the headship of Jesus Christ. And we thank you that we know through the gospel how you have crafted and planned it and how he has fulfilled it in his death and by his resurrection. That he who, through whom you created the world and for whom you created the world is the one through whom you have redeemed mankind and for whom you've redeemed mankind. And we thank you that you are at work in everything for us, for our good, calling us and predestining us, electing us and choosing us to be yours, justified and glorified, transforming us, changing us, working in everything in our lives to bring about your good purposes that we would be like the Lord Jesus and that he would be the firstborn amongst many, many brothers. We thank you, Father, for your grand plan. And we thank you for the preaching of the gospel, the proclamation of forgiveness. We thank you for those who brought the message to us and to our families that we might know of forgiveness of our sins, that we might be changed and transformed by you through this gospel message. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to so understand what you are doing in this world and what you are doing through us that we might participate knowingly and consciously in your plans, bringing about your good purposes, that in everything in us, the Lord Jesus would be glorified and we would be glorified in him, that at the last day, people will be astonished and marveled at us being so much like Jesus and at you who could bring such people into your kingdom to look like your son. And so, Father, we pray that you would be at work ringing about every good resolve of our hearts to will and to work for your good pleasure, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.